All right. Good morning, everyone. My name is Lane. I am the youth director as well as the young adults pastor here, and I'm really excited to be contributing to this series in the Shema, Listening to God's Heart. Uh, last week, Brad kicked us off in this series in a way that I thought was really, really powerful, really poignant for us. So if you haven't had an opportunity to listen to that message yet, I would highly recommend that you go back and listen to that. It's really going to set the tone for what this series is all about. And Brad introduced us to the Shema itself, which is this ancient prayer um, that ancient Hebrews have treasured for, for generations and generations, and it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So there's a tradition to, uh, that the Jewish people have to take the the. the, the the Shema, to roll it up into a little tiny paper scroll and then to encase it inside of a glass scroll. And they will nail this scroll to their door frame so that as they exit or enter their homes, they can touch it and be reminded of this ancient prayer that God had given to them so many years ago. And when my wife and I got married, we actually received one of these mezuzahs as a wedding gift, which was really, really powerful, really cool. We were really grateful. Well, David Beavis, who's our middle school pastor, him and I have been friends for many years. He was in my wedding. And uh, after I told him about the gift, he says, wow, I feel really bad for getting you guys a toaster. And that's okay. Bread needs to become toast somehow, David. I'm very grateful for the toaster. But Brad talked about the word itself, Shema, which in our translations is the word hear. But this word here wasn't simply about sound waves hitting our eardrums. This was about the concept of listening and obeying, that these two concepts, listening and obeying, were one in the same. Now, as we go throughout the series, we're going to be looking at different facets of the prayer. So this week, we're going to be looking at what does it look like to love the Lord your God with all your heart, next week's soul, might, etc., etc. But this week, we beg the question, what does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart? Now, considering the events that have taken place in the last week, excuse me, the, the events that have taken place all of 2020, sorry, let me rephrase, for all of the brokenness and evil that human beings have been capable of throughout all of human history, we would be deceiving ourselves to think that this is simply a matter of policy or of party. None of the brokenness that we've witnessed throughout human history is, is simply and by itself a matter of us not being able to rightly order society. It runs much deeper. There's something at the root of this problem, and it is the brokenness within every single human heart, yours and mine. So we thought, should we tweak the message? Should we talk about something else in light of what's been going on? But in fact, talking about the human heart and loving God with our heart is probably more relevant now than it ever has been. Well, that's not true. It's always been relevant. But it's especially important now that we talk about it. So when we talk about loving... The Lord your God with all your heart, we have to start with, with love. And that can be difficult in our culture because here in the West, we tend to think about love as kind of this static thing that happens to us, right? Like I either fall in love or I don't. You know, I love you, but I'm not in love with you, that kind of thing. It's something that happens to me. But the ancient Hebrews had a more integrated understanding of what love was. There was a, a, a connotation that if you were to love, you would also obey. Right? We look at John 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So they had this integrated understanding where the connotation of love meant action as well. So with this in mind, we ask, what does it mean to love the Lord our God with all of our heart? 
Well, to talk about the word heart, the ancient Hebrews also understood the heart to be more than what we understand it to be, which is an organ that pumps blood throughout the body. The ancient Hebrews used this language of heart to represent the epicenter of a human's desires, their longings, their affections. So what I longed for, my heart was responsible, what I desired. Okay, so what does it mean to love God with all my desires, with all my longings? Well, if we're going to talk about that, we first need to acknowledge that human beings desire things that are not good for us. In fact, we desire things sometimes that, that are, are destructive to us. And to acknowledge that even is not so straightforward in our culture because here in the West, we say things like you have to be true to yourself. Yeah? The heart wants what it wants. And if we want to be truly happy in this life, we need to follow our heart. And this reasoning that we use to follow our heart puts us in all sorts of unhealthy and dangerous situations all the time, right? Last week, Brad mentioned the human propensity to love French fries. I love French fries, but they put me in regrettable situations a lot of the time. <laughs> Celebrating my 30th birthday, my wife posted all these pictures of us going back to the years when we first met. I met her 11 years ago, and it looked like a, a scroll of me losing weight. <laughs> French fries will, will do this to us. I know they're not good for me, but I want them, I desire them. We can justify ourselves in all sorts of selfish scenarios because we're following our hearts, because we want to be true to ourselves. Now hear me out. I think that it is very important that we be true to ourselves, that we embrace our individual story, our unique contributions to the universe. And life can be a lot more enjoyable when I'm uh, my, most, my most authentic and most integrated self. But here's the issue. If I'm a follower of Jesus, I actually have two selves. Yeah, I have the fallen, broken me. This is a representation of everything evil and everything broken in this world. I can find it right here in my human heart. Everything selfish. And then I have this resurrected self. This is a part of me that Jesus has transformed and is transforming into new redeemed me. 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. This is the part of me that's woven into a better hope, a better future for humanity. It's my true and perfect self. But the tension is that I am not fully that resurrected person yet. I'm becoming that, but I'm not fully there. Pastor Randy used to say, I'm no longer who I once was, but I'm not yet who I fully am becoming. So which self, which heart am I going to listen to? Where are those longings? Where are my desires? In the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 17, verse 9, speaking on behalf of the Lord, God says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Oh, no. Okay, so I'm supposed to love the Lord my God with all my heart, but my heart is deceitful beyond all things and beyond cure? That's not good news. Okay, so how do I love God if this is the case? The prolific and profound uh, author C.S. Lewis, a lot of us know him by uh, the Chronicles of, Nari, Nari? Chronicles of Narnia book series. And in this book series, he wrote one called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in this book, there's this character, his name's Eustace. And Eustace is kind of this bratty, greedy, annoying, complaining child who's just bugging all of the main protagonists all throughout the book. And symbolically, and not so subtly, in the book he gets transformed into a dragon. And he can't seem to change himself back. He's trying to scratch the, the scales off of his body. He wants to turn back into a real person, but he can't do it. So Aslan, who is Jesus in this story, finds him and transforms him back into a human being. 
And at the end of the book, some of the other characters asking him, Eustace, what was it like for Aslan to transform you back into a human being? And he drops this line that's so powerful. He says, no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't do it myself. Let's cling to that idea for a moment. No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't do it myself. Last week, Brad reminded us of this revolutionary truth that our desires can in fact be changed. That even though we do crave French fries, we can get into the habit of craving salads. Maybe not on the side of eternity, but it can happen. But not simply because we white knuckle it. Not simply because we try to make it happen. Like Eustace, we can't do it ourselves. The renovation of our heart has to be initiated by God. Jesus has to disciple us into more life-giving desires. C.S. Lewis has this other quote. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. When infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. So Jesus has to disciple us into more life-giving desires, that there has to be a heart change. Change is possible. Our desires are not too strong, but too weak. But the framework for change in our culture is difficult because we live in a climate currently of evolutionary secular humanism. We see this framework all throughout our pop culture, especially in science fiction, which I love science fiction. 2001 A Space Odyssey, Interstellar, Star Trek. Oh, Star Trek is my jam. I love Star Trek. I've been a Star Trek nerd since I was a little kid. And uh, in fact, we're going to throw a picture on the screen in a moment of me and my wife back in college dressing up as uh, Spock and Uhura for Halloween. Or we won't because it was just too embarrassing. God decided no one needs to see that. <laughs> oh, it's right there. Great. There, there we are. Um, yeah, this was, a good, <laughs> this was a good time. So I love Star Trek. But here's the thing. There's this movie. Uh, a Star Trek movie called Star Trek Nemesis, in which the protagonist, who is Captain Picard, portrayed by Sir Patrick Stewart, is having a conversation with his evil clone. Yes, I know, it's, I'm a nerd. So he's talking to his evil clone, and he's trying to, to talk to this broken representation of himself and explain what it is to be human. And he says, this is what it is to be human, to make yourself more than you are. To make yourself more than you, now I love Patrick Stewart, I love Star Trek, love Captain Picard, but he's not right about that. He's not totally right about that. See, we have this framework in our culture that says that human beings will one day achieve utopia through progress. That through our hard work, we'll be able to make ourselves paradise. That we'll one day achieve this. But the biblical narrative is that we are not becoming that ourselves. The biblical narrative suggests that true paradise, that true shalom is about becoming who we were always meant to be not about becoming who we think we sometimes should be. It's not about reaching the horizon, it's about coming home. That's what the biblical narrative tells us. The story of the Bible is about God's great love for us and him wanting to be reunited with us. Don't let anyone tell you anything differently. That's God's love and his love alone that takes center stage in the story. And that love is what initiates change in us. That's what has to happen, right? John talks about this in, in, in 1 John, that loving each other well only happens because God loved us first. 
that has to happen. He has to change those desires with his love. Because our desires, they gravitate towards things that we think we need. Right? Someone wise once told me that sin is simply human beings trying to meet our needs in ways that God never intended us to. It's doing things our own way. There's God's way, and we choose our way. In fact, this was the original sin. If we go back to the garden, we go back to Genesis, we see that human beings ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that we decided to discern for ourselves what was good and what was evil apart from relationship with God, apart from connection to his trust. And this spirit of rebellion, of doing things our, our own way, continued to go throughout history until it reached a pinnacle in this story that a lot of us will remember called the Tower of Babel. Yes? Human beings decided that we were going to build a tower to ascend to the heavens, that we, through human effort and human achievement, could become like God. Of course, this, this doesn't work, but the, but the story of Babel gives birth to the kingdom of Babylon. And Babylon is recognized throughout the biblical narrative, all throughout the scriptures, as the spirit of human rebellion. This is humans doing things their own way, apart from relationship with God. Now, if we look at what God was concerned with back in the garden, if we go back to Genesis, human beings have decided to discern for themselves what is good and what is evil, to do things their own way, and they're hiding in their own shame. And what is God's first question to human beings? Where are you? What God was most concerned about in the garden was that they decided to do things apart from the loving relationship and trust and affection that he had established. Everything that God desires for us is out of a heart of affection and love for us. This is the heart of the story of the Bible, that he loves us and he wants to transform us and restore us. But we in the Western world, we value thought and we value will, right? We live in the information age. We live in the age of reason and we value the grind in our society. We believe that it is our thoughts that shape our will and our will will drive us towards our goals. But Christians throughout most of history, throughout all of history, have understood that beyond what we think and what we will, it is actually what we love that shapes us. It is actually what we love that shapes our lives. There's this author named James K.A. Smith, and he wrote a book called You Are What You Love. I would highly recommend this book. And he has this quote, he says, love is like autopilot, orienting us without our thinking about it. See, without a deep affection and desire for God, anything we do, even if it's for him, becomes the thing that separates us from him. Jesus warns us about this in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out many demons? In your name perform many miracles? And Jesus says, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. This is God's desire. What we do for God could and should only flow out of a place of belonging and relationship with him. That is if we want it to be good fruit. Right? Jesus tells us in, in the Gospel of John that pleasing obedience, that good work, only flows if we are the branches that are grafted into his vine. That good work must flow from a place of belonging. And if we go back to the garden narrative, if we go back to Genesis, we see that human beings were created on the sixth day, which means that on the seventh day was the day of Shabbat, or Sabbath, the day of rest. So think about that. The first full day that human beings have on the planet is a day of rest. 
a place of belonging where they can be in loving relationship and communion with their father. And from that place of belonging then flows the meaningful work. But we so easily flip the script, don't we? It's a natural inclination for us to believe that we need to, to work in order to earn approval and affection, and especially of God's. The parable of the two brothers is a story that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke. There's the older brother, he's the responsible one. He, he's been following the rules his whole life, and there's a rebellious one, he's the younger one. He takes his father's inheritance, goes to a distant country and spends it all in wild living, comes back desperate, and the father embraces him with love, forgiveness, affection, and the older brother is mad. He says, I've been working for you my whole life. I've never asked for anything and I have nothing to show for. What gives? And the father gently tells him, my son, you have always been with me and everything I have is yours. See, we're like this older brother and we fall into this deception that in this life we need to work in order to earn the affection of God. And then when we do that, our lives become about sin management rather than about true transformation and reconciliation in our hearts because of our relationship with Jesus. Dallas Willard talks about this in a book he wrote called The Divine Conspiracy. We like to manage our sin, our behaviors, rather than be in loving communion with God. This is the, the natural human reflex. And there's two main ways that we do this. There's the sin management of justice, and the sin management of morality. This is gonna make everybody mad, so buckle your seatbelts. With the sin management of justice, we see things that are wrong in the world, we see injustices taking place, so we move to fix them in the way we think they should be fixed. And anyone who isn't on board with my way of healing or running the world needs to either fall in line or get out of the way. And let's not kid ourselves, every side of every debate is guilty of this, but no one in this room, right? And then there's the sin management of morality. And this is where I pride myself on how holy and how perfect I can become. I keep this really high uh, uh, standard of moral values and I read my Bible a lot and I, and I take pride in how little I use my temper or how sexually upright I am. And anyone that doesn't measure up to this standard is either unworthy of me or beneath me or worse, if I don't measure up to my own standards, I live a life of shame and self-deprecation. See, what Jesus calls us to is so much more radical, so much deeper than simply a modification of our behavior. What Jesus is after is he wants to transform our hearts so that what naturally flows from us is what naturally flows from his heart. That's what he's after. Jesus talks about this on the Sermon on the Mount. Right? He says, look, I've not come to abolish the biblical laws of the prophets. I've not come to get rid of the rules, I, but I've come to fulfill them. I've come to be the very nature of these laws, to get to the heart of the matter. The law says that you shouldn't uh, murder people. Great. But do you hate people? Are you violent with them in your attitude? Because the violence you see on the news is also present here in your heart. It says don't commit adultery. Great. But are you looking at people with lust? Have human souls become objects of pleasure? Because if, if, if that's happening, that's where the biggest problem is here in the human heart. You love people that are like you, great. Guess what, everyone does that, including the pagans. How about your enemies? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect, meaning loving indiscriminately. He wants to get to the heart of the matter. 
He says, I haven't come to tell you that living a holy life isn't what I want for you, but how and why you get there is far more important. See, I can, I can have the most powerful ship on the seas with the most able-bodied and competent crew, but what good will it do me if my compass doesn't point north? It won't do me any good. I can have the strongest will and the most disciplined mind, but what good will it do me if it brings me to my desires that will kill me? My compass, my heart is what needs to be redeemed. We often like to quote Psalm 37 to people when they're feeling discouraged and we say, don't worry, God will give you the desires of your heart, which is true, but we often forget the first part of that line, which is delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. See, he gives us the desires of our heart when we learn to give him our desires. Do we see how that works? Jesus tells us, look, if you want to follow me, if you want to find your life, you need to lose it. That's how this discipleship thing works. And like Brad said last week, this life is not about us trying to make God listen and obey. It's about us listening and obeying him. In the prophet Isaiah, chapter 29, verse 13, God says, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Beautiful. This redeemed, humble, softened heart is so important because as the psalmist says in Psalm 4, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Everything you do. Look, God is a good and loving father. That's who he is. He doesn't ask us to obey him because he wants to flex his authority over us. He's not, he's not egocentric. He's not, he's not arrogant. He does this. He asks us to obey because he loves us and he wants what's best for us. He wants our good. In John chapter 15, we quoted this earlier. As the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that, your, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. That my joy may be in you. He says it right there. That's why I want you to obey, because I want you to have joy. Listening to and obeying God is the good life. But sometimes our own habits and our own patterns and our own way of doing things, our own Babylon that we have here in our hearts, it feels almost impossible to get it out, right? Well, I'm a stress eater. That's part of the way that I cope with feeling anxiety or stress. So um, it's hard. I, I like to snack. And so I can't keep ice cream at the house because a two liter, it doesn't, it doesn't take long for that to go away. So I can't keep it at the house, right? When my wife was giving birth, I was stressed out. I know. She was more stressed out, but I was also stressed. I was trying to be a supportive partner, right? I'm there, uh, the midwives are coaching me through how to support her, so I'm, I'm doing all the birthing postures with her, and I'm putting pressure on all the places, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm coping because I brought a big bag of snacks with me. The midwives told me to. They said, bring a big bag of snacks because you're going to run out of adrenaline, and you need to be fueled so you can be there for her. So in between every contraction, I'm running back to the snack bag, and I'm sh you know, shuffling things into my, oh, see? It's God telling me it's not the way. So I'm shoveling snacks into my mouth and then I'm, and so this continues and she labored for 30 hours. I'm telling you, I did not stop eating for 30 hours. And I'm to the point where I'm trying to comfort her. I'm rubbing her back. It's going to be okay, sweet. I'm like trying not to throw up because I've made myself sick with food. I make light of this, but it's frustrating, isn't it? It is. We have these habits. We have these things. And we're like, why do I go back to this? 
It's frustrating. The truth of the matter is, we will probably wrestle with a lot of these habits for the rest of our lives. We break free from addictions, we change patterns of behavior, it's true, but there's always that false self that wants to take the wheel. It's looking for that opportunity to do that, which is why proximity to the Father is so important. It's when I try to put distance between me and God by doing things my own way, that there's room for the serpent to deceive me, that I can discern for myself what is good and what is evil. But when I run to the Father, those options don't seem as healthy, right? As we read earlier in Deuteronomy, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure, which is why we step into things like spiritual disciplines or disciplines of spiritual formation to create space for God to transform our hearts. We said this series was gonna be practical at the beginning. Here's just a couple of practical things that we can talk about that Christians have been in rhythms of doing for a very, very long time for centuries. And they're designed to create space for the Holy Spirit to work in us, the presence of God to transform us. Now in their worst form, spiritual disciplines can become these like religious practices that become a part of our pious checklist, right? It's another way for me to earn the affection of God, another way for me to achieve holiness. But in their best form, there are these life-giving opportunities that act as an intentional space for me to shema, for me to listen and obey. I'm gonna talk about a few disciplines. One discipline that I think is really cool is the discipline of silence. Some people take vows of silence and go years or even their whole lives without speaking. I did one day, I did 24 hours when I was in college and I wasn't allowed to speak at all uh, unless there was an emergency. And during this time, it was, it was interesting how often I realized my reflex to want to advocate for myself, to want to interject my opinion. To, and, and, and God was trying to speak to me throughout my whole life, but I was so busy trying to insert my own will and my own voice that I couldn't hear him. It was fascinating. This simple discipline of taking 24 hours of my whole life to not talk, I realized that it gave me an opportunity to, sh to shema, to listen and to obey. There's disciplines like fasting. Fasting is going without food or something else for a period of time and it creates discomfort, right? And it creates space for God to remind me that he's with me even in discomfort, that I don't survive off of just bread alone. He's continuing to move, he's continuing to speak and redeem even when I'm uncomfortable, even when I'm in pain. One of the 10 commandments, honor the Shabbat, honor the Sabbath, right? This is where um, the Jews who were taken out of Egypt and a life of slavery are reminded every week that their identity is not in the work they do, but in the loving relationship that God had given them. So these, these disciplines in their, in their best form, they help us to, to shema, to listen and obey. And apart from love, apart from affection, apart from receiving them as such, they become religion. And then they become poison to the human soul. This is super important for the Christian Change cannot simply be about outcomes. It's not just about becoming better, it's about finding connection. It's about being in relationship. When I go out on a date with my wife and we do something fun, I'm not doing it for the fun thing. I'm doing it to be connected with my wife. The disciplines are meant to serve us. So when we give God this practical space in our lives to transform us, our reactions begin to be reformed into loving responses. I don't know about you, but I've become a little more reactive in this season. Anyone else? Just me, oh, liars, all of you, so many. Um, it's been stressful, right? All the isolation, all the quarantining, all of the pressures in our society. It's like, I am ready to snap at people, my temper's shorter. Yeah, I had a mentor once that told me, look, if I need a good night's sleep and a, a, a rest and a full belly to be a nice person, then maybe I'm not really a nice person. 
But we give God this intentional space and it begins to yield redemption and transformation in our hearts. Our actions begin to shift from moments of reaction to loving response. I was in martial arts for a, a, a long time. Uh, from the ages of six to 16, I did Japanese jujitsu. One of the first things they teach us is how to fall. Because the human reflex when you fall is to put your hands out in front of you to stop the fall. But this often incurs more injury because when I fall, I jam my arm out and I can break my wrist or jam my elbow or hurt my shoulder. So they teach us to give in to the gravity of the fall and then to roll out of it. And to this day, it's really hard to hurt me trying to trip me. Probably shouldn't have said that. Um, <laughs> but, but from a time of training, I learned to take that reaction and to form it into a response where I would then roll. And this is what disciplines do. They help us to take our reactions and to reform them into responses until those responses become our first instinct, become our second nature. Look, maybe there's those of us here today are listening online and you know that what you've been doing in your life has not been yielding your flourishing, that doing things your way has not been working. As Brad said during communion, there is a love that is offered to you that is free of earning. It's done out of pure affection for you and it's for you. Maybe there are those of us here who have achieved a lot, but are feeling empty. This love is for you. Or maybe there's some of us here today who like me have been around church for a long time and we've get, we get stuck in this dance of sin management. And we forget that why God really called us to this faith is because he wants to be with us. This love is for us. Sometimes we get trapped and we think if I can just pretend to be a Christian for long enough, maybe it'll make it true. But truth is not an idea or a set of practices. Truth is a person. Truth is Jesus, and he wants to know you above all else. Can we stand together? Jesus, we acknowledge before you now that we often desire things. We often want to do things our own way that are not good for us. But we know that you as a loving father move to transform our desires because you love us, because you want what is best for us. We ask that you would help us to receive this love. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great week and we'll see you next time.